Uh, good morning. My name is Wes, one of the pastors here, and excited now to come to a time in God's Word um, and talk a little bit about it, what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, or some way to access the Scriptures, if you turn to Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, and when you found that, if you would stand together with me, I'll read this passage for us. Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> when I finished reading, I'll say, this is God's word, and you can respond, if you would, by giving thanks, saying, thanks be to God. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat, and he, this is Jesus, answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, I love this, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Whoa, uh-oh. He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes from the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, I ask now that you would come and illumine the preaching of your word. Open our, our, our hearts, our minds, our ears, and eyes to see and hear and understand what it is you want to accomplish through this word. You promised us in your word that you don't send out your word, uh, and it doesn't accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. So I'm asking now, whatever that purpose is, would you accomplish that in each one of us today? As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. The human life is made up of choices. Yes or no, in or out, up or down, live or die, hero or coward, fight or give in. I'll say it again to make sure you hear me. The human life is made up of choices. Live or die, that's the most important choice. And it's not always in our hands. Or so says Dr. Derek Shepard, <laughs> the former head of neurosurgery and board chair at Grace Sloan Memorial Hospital in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Shepard was known to say all kinds of powerful, inspiring things like this as he led his team, um, as he led his uh, department in all kinds of ways until his untimely death in a truck accident in 2015. My best guess is what you 
also know about Dr. Shepard is that Dr. Shepard is not actually a doctor. Dr. Shepard is a character played by Patrick Dempsey on a well-known TV medical drama, Grey's Anatomy. And yet, come on, you, you watch the show enough, hear him talk, he knows all the language, see him perform these complicated brain surgeries enough, he sure looks like a doctor, doesn't he? I mean, yeah, from all outward appearances, this is a doctor. But, but of course, the distance between appearing to be a doctor and, and the years of actual medical training required, you know, like the stuff on the inside of you that actually makes you a doctor? The distance between those two things is, is vast. And, and however much he might look the part, Patrick Dempsey wouldn't be allowed to even apply a Band-Aid in a hospital, let alone uh, perform brain surgery. And the reason, obviously, is because, well, people coming into the hospital are coming in with real issues, real life and death issues. And while important, the external outward appearance is only meant to be a reflection of what's already true on the inside. It, it doesn't work the other way around. And I bring it up as we continue in our teaching series this morning through Matthew's Gospel entitled Kingdom Come because what I believe you clearly see in our passage today is, well, I mean, over time, maybe perhaps with the best of intentions, the Pharisees, the religious rulers in Jesus' day, that they'd got that same order twisted themselves, only as it relates to faith in God. And as a result, had come to see the external appearance, the, the practice of faith, we'll call that religion, they'd come to see that as being of greater or at least equal importance with true faith in the heart. You know, the, the stuff on the inside that actually saves you. And I want to look at this together with you because, no doubt, Jesus' contrasting of the Word of God with the traditions of men, the way he contrasts the true cleansing that only he can offer with just ritual uh, external washings, foundational stuff. As you see in verse 10 there, it's stuff that Jesus wants everyone who follows him to know. But I want to look at this together with you as well because far too often when we come to a passage like this where you see Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees kind of all together in the same scene, Oftentimes, we, we tend to identify ourselves with some party in the scene, you know, and, and, and we, what I've found is we almost always identify ourselves with the disciples, not the Pharisees. Those are the guys who are like, yeah, I can, I can recognize that. I mean, I don't know almost anyone who, you know, identifies with Jesus the most. He's like, that's me in the story. I'm the one who would tell the Pharisees. But, but we almost always identify ourselves disciples and not Pharisees, and yet... The reality is the pursuit of external righteousness, kind of a, a humanly attainable pattern of religion that I can accomplish in my own strength, that I can slot nicely into my Google calendar on my phone, that's very often what we default to as well today, and in fact, in some cases, prefer. Why? Well, because while we all sense our need for cleansing to some degree or another, we want to go about it on our own terms. And we are pricked, kind of actually incensed by the idea of being told that we need something, really someone, outside of ourselves in order to accomplish it. We, we want to work for it ourselves. So we love the idea of pursuing religion instead of faith. So we pursue instead what Tim Keller calls an outside-in faith, where we kind of are playing the part or playing the role of faith to the best of our ability with the hope that someday actual faith will kind of catch up with our religious performance. But as we already learned from Dr. Shepard, it doesn't work the other way around. A truly cleansed heart, 
on the inside will increasingly be reflected on the external behavior. External behavior, the appearance of faith alone, can never create a truly cleansed heart. So in order that you and, and that I might get the order right, that we might get that it's inside-out faith, not outside-in ourselves, we get that either for the first time or relearn it, if maybe we kind of slid back into that default of outside-in, and experience both the blessing of a truly cleansed heart as well as rest from striving for what's already been earned for us by Jesus. I want to look at our passage today in just three simple ways. We're going to look at our need for cleansing, blind guides to cleansing, and then we'll close this morning by looking at Jesus' offer of heart-level cleansing. Okay, Our need for, for cleansing, blind guides to cleansing, Jesus' offer of heart-level cleansing. So if you close your Bibles, your Bible app, if you would open them again with me to that passage of Matthew 15, follow along with me as we learn together what it means to pursue a faith in God where he is honored by both our words as well as the true affection of our hearts. Okay, so let's look first of all at our need for cleansing. Our need for cleansing. And where this kind of all kicks off here is back in verses 1 and 2 of our passage. Look there with me. Apparently, Jesus has generated enough heat and light with his ministry that he's now drawn the, the big bosses out. The, the C-suite guys from corporate in Jerusalem have now come out to the countryside of Galilee to see what's going on with this Jesus of Nazareth. And it looks like they seem to observe him for all of like five minutes before immediately finding something that they can confront Jesus with, namely his disciples eating without washing their hands. Which, to us, like to a modern reader, we read that, and that sounds like just the lamest, kind of like most mom-like criticism. I'm not throwing shade on moms here. I just remember growing up, that was like a very common thing my mom would say to me every time I picked up anything. Have you washed your hands first? So I just associate it with that. But, I mean, like, like you're literally telling a bunch of like predominantly blue-collar workers out in the countryside, uh, asking them why they would just start eating without washing their hands. It, it seems ridiculous. But the clue as to what's really going on is the way that they preface their question by asking Jesus to, why Jesus' disciples are breaking what they refer to as the tradition of the elders. Tradition of the elders, what's that? Well, this was a long list of rules and regulations put together by Pharisees and rabbis over the years, which was kind of like almost like a commentary on the scriptures. And, and as they saw it, by living in accordance with these rules and regulations that, that they put around the law of God, it would help ensure the scriptures would be honored and kept. And yes, as it relates to their question, there were regulations for hand washing before eating, which would keep you from becoming ceremonially unclean, uh, that were included in this list and that every faithful Jew knew and faithfully carried out. But something that is important to know is that nowhere in the Old Testament law was this ritual hand washing before eating required of anyone except for the priests in their temple service. That was the only place where you found this in the Old Testament law. So applying this requirement to everyone, however helpful the intent, was actually, it was something that wasn't actually required by the law of God at all, just this tradition of the elders. But as can so often become the case, what started out as a helpful community guideline, um, eventually over time, started to be enforced like a commandment. I like the way one commentator put it, noting this. He said, a tradition heritage or devotion intended to be a protective hedge around God's word can in fact easily become a hedge separating us from obedience to God's word. 
which if you look at what Jesus responds to their interrogation in verse 3 and following there, it's exactly what he accuses them of. He says, their traditions, no, he, he calls them your traditions, which were supposed to be about helping people to keep God's commandments, were instead causing them to break them. But having said that, note in particular that even as Jesus returns to the question of hand washing in verse 11, at no time does Jesus say that cleansing isn't necessary. He doesn't say uh, all this, like the reason you're trying to wash your hands and all these things, that that's not important. It's never needed. All he says is that ritual washing of hands before eating had no bearing on what was actually making them unclean. It doesn't affect that uncleanness. As you see in Jesus' explanation in verses 17 through 20, the problem or the defilements they were working so hard to address through things like hand washing was actually a heart level issue, not a hygiene issue. And the Bible's answer to where that sense of defilement, that needing to be cleansed comes from, and I believe actually that's a sense that, that we all have, whether we believe in God or not. It's a sense of needing to be cleansed somehow. The Bible's answer to why we feel that is that in the beginning, God created everything. He created the universe, created the world, us, everything in it, and he created it good, without sin, without disease, death, and yet mankind rebelled against God. We chose to be our own gods. And as a result, although we were made for relationship with God, we became separated from God by sin so that now the deep-seated longing of every human heart, as Joni Mitchell famous, famously sang in her song Woodstock, is to get ourselves back to the garden. The problem with that is that in order to do that, we needed to be cleansed of that sin which was separating us from God to begin with. But like Lady Macbeth scrubbing her guilty hands, nothing we could do, nothing was in our power that could ever remove the damned spot. And thus, from that point onwards, all of humanity finds itself outside the garden and in need of cleansing. And I know like when we hear stuff like that to, again, modern years, it sounds like archaic. Categories that we don't really use anymore, talking about sin and separation from God and cleansing, it all just sounds very like foreign. And yet, in his own work on this passage, I love an illustration that Tim Keller gave, which I think perfectly explains why that sense of a needing to be cleansed still exists today, even if we don't use categories like that. And the illustration came from a book by Franz Kafka called The Trial. And in this book, a man named Joseph K., He's living an otherwise normal, ordinary life when one day he is arrested, taken into custody, and then horribly treated for the rest of the book. Uh, he just goes from hearing to hearing, custody to custody, but he's never told what he did wrong. So the whole time he's just horribly treated and left to wonder what it was that he'd done to be arrested for, what he was accused of, until finally, at the end of the book, one of his wardens stabs him to death and he dies. Super light, feel-good book for sure. And yet, in one of his diaries, Kafka later reveals what the book was actually about, writing this. He says, the state in which we find ourselves is sinful, quite independent of guilt. Trying to make sense of this sense of a need for cleansing we all have. The state in which we find ourselves is sinful, quite independent of guilt. Keller says what Kafka was saying is, yes, we live in a world where we don't believe in heaven or hell, we don't believe in sin, we don't have these older categories anymore, and yet we still feel there's something wrong with us. 
We still have a kind of deep, profound, inescapable sense that if we were examined, we wouldn't pass. That we need to hide or at least control what people know about us. That we aren't acceptable. And we need to prove to ourselves and other people that we're okay, that we're lovable, that we're valuable. And that's the sense. Like, that's what I'm talking about. That sense is what I believe we all, to one degree or another, know and feel. It was the same sense underneath the Pharisees' passionate defense of something as simple as hand-washing. That, that sense that we all need to be cleansed. But the problem with a collective sense of our need for cleansing beyond just like having it to begin with, and, and however it is that you define that need, is that everyone's also got their own theory about how to deal with it. Um, we've all got our own stain-fighting technique, strategy, process, product, that we're certain will win the day. And yet the issue with that is that the majority of them are false claims or, or only partly true claims. So that's what I want to look at next for just a minute in our passage. We'll look at blind guides to cleansing. And in Jesus' day, there was no shortage of these guides promising to help deal with this collective problem that everyone was experiencing, just as there's no shortage of them today as well. But for Jewish people living in a now Roman-occupied homeland in particular, the main voice that they looked to for guidance to, to deal with this problem were the religious rulers of the day, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees. These were the voices, the trusted guides that they had. And the guidance that they were offering is actually extremely compelling, particularly to people with this historic and cultural identity as the chosen people of God. This made a lot of sense to them. Their point, and rightly so, was that God's people had a history of following God seriously for a while and then rebelling against God, uh, going off into idolatry, breaking away, serving other gods, and as a result, suffered the consequences, at times severe, of removing themselves from underneath God's protective and blessing hand. And so the problem, as they saw it, and I believe rightly so, was separation from God as a result of disobedience. And their solution was that collectively as a nation, they needed to get serious about obedience to the law of Moses again, like really serious. And the hope was, if they could just be serious enough, follow God closely enough again, they would return to favor with God. And they'd be cleansed of their, their transgressions, they'd see God at last, remove Rome from power just as he had done previously with Pharaoh in Egypt. This is what they were hoping for, if they could just follow the rules closely enough. But here's the thing, when we're looking for a guide of any kind, what we need is not just someone who knows the area well, someone who knows the best routes up the mountain, not someone who just kind of can tell you the best restaurants and sites to see. We also need someone who knows how to get to those places, right? And in order to do that, in order to show you how to get to those places, and I'm trusting this is not a controversial statement, you need to be able to see. You need to be able to see in order to guide people to where they are getting. Either physically, you need to be able to say, follow me as I lead you up this mountain or whatever it is. Or, or even just to be able to point on the map. You're going here. You need to be able to see or you're no guide at all. And the, 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 the simple kind of way I think of it is if I'm, if I'm at a base camp at Mount Everest, I'm about to do my first ascent up to the top, and my guide or my Sherpa or whatever comes up and he says, all right, let's head out. It's this way. And then immediately like walks into a wall and then starts like reaching around blindly on the ground for his sunglasses. Yeah, I'm, I'm not following that guide as another step. 
I don't, I don't want to go anywhere I, I, because he's not going to be able to get me where I want to go. He can't lead me. A guide needs to be able to see in order to lead me where because I, I don't know how to get there myself. I don't know what the dangers are. He needs to be able to see to show me those things. But having said that, the reason I don't follow him is because I can see that he doesn't know where he's going, that he can't get me where I need to go. But if neither of us can see, if we're both blind and someone says, follow me, I know how to get out of here, I probably will follow him. Because I can't tell that they don't actually know where they're going either. So I'll just follow where they go. And that's exactly, if you look at verse 14, this is what the, the, Jesus is describing to his disciples. And they come and tell him hilariously, by the way, Pharisees were, they didn't like what you said there about their traditions. Jesus says there, verse 14, let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Essentially he's saying, don't, don't follow those blind guides another step. Sure, yeah. They, they speak confidently. They speak authoritatively. They sound like they know exactly where to go. But the reality is they can't see where they're going themselves, and if you blindly follow them, you'll both end up lost. So what the Pharisees were presenting was a religious solution to our need for cleansing, which, again, would have been powerfully compelling to devout Jews in Jesus' day, just as it is for many of us today. First and foremost, because, of course, God himself was the one who had laid down, right, all these commandments, all these ceremonial laws, the sacrificial system that was supposed to deal with our sin problem, supposed to deal with our, unclean, our uncleanness. But here's the thing, what the Pharisees were blind to in Jesus' day and what we can so often be blind to ourselves today as well is both what and who those laws and regulations were pointing to. What they were pointing to was intended to be our grateful response to redemption and cleansing that God had already accomplished. We carry out these things in our grateful response. They were never a means by which we could earn God's acceptance. We could earn his cleansing. Remember, we, we prefaced each one of the Ten Commandments in the summer series by reminding ourselves that the Ten Commandments don't begin with what we do for God. They begin with what he's done for us already. So, that's what these things were all pointing to. Secondly, who they were pointing to was the one whose perfect sacrifice on the cross would make an end to all other sacrifices, make them obsolete. For consider this, like if you think back to that beginning story, when Adam and Eve left the garden because of their sin in Genesis 3, we, we actually see the beginnings of some kind of sacrificial system already even taking place. But notice, even then, at no time did their sacrifices grant them entry back into the garden. Instead, God promised that one day he would send a rescuer, this seed of a woman who would break the power of sin and death over his creation, make a way for us to stand clean again in front of our God. So you see, it was always a person that would bring about our cleansing, never a process, never a religious procedure. But because the Pharisees were blind to Jesus, that is, they couldn't see how Jesus was the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament that they revered so much. They were blind guides to the scriptures themselves, and they couldn't lead anyone else a single step closer to cleansing either, no matter how well-intentioned or rigorous their efforts. And yet the reality is that the religious answer to the problem that we all sense, it's just one of numerous blind guides today, just as there was all these blind guides then. It's one of the numerous ones we see today as well. However you define the problem, even if you don't define it as a need for cleansing, there are numerous blind guides 
promising this is the way. Some seek a, a political answer to this problem, this sense that we all have. And things like greater education, uh, stricter laws, some say capitalism, socialism, all these things. These are presented as what's needed. This will fix the problem, they say. And yet over and over again, they address problems that are out there, but never touch the problem that's in here. For others, the answer is an answer of popular culture, fame, a celebrity, greater fitness, uh, affluence. These are presented as the solution. If you just have this, that's going to solve that, that sense of being unclean or unacceptable. You just need to be more whatever. It's going to solve the, the problem, and yet invariably the same results come about. As, as with religion or politics, it doesn't work. But do you see, each time, every one of these answers, they're, they're, all, they're all seeking to address this problem that we sense with external, humanly achievable and attainable solutions that appear to resolve the issue. They look like they're working. But in the end, invariably, they fail because, again, they're continuing to try to deal with this problem out here and don't, trust, don't touch the problem that's in here uncleanness at a heart level that external solutions have no hope of reaching or resolving. So what do we do? What's the answer to this problem touching every single one of us but which none of our external solutions can resolve? That's what I want to look at together with you lastly now as we, in closing here, we'll talk about Jesus' offer of heart level cleansing. And although Jesus assumes his offer of heart-level cleansing by this point in Matthew, one of the places where you see him clearly offering it is in a passage that we looked at not too long ago in Matthew 11, where Jesus says this, maybe this is familiar to you, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Gavin Ortland uh, describes this passage as the only place in the New Testament where Jesus describes what he's like himself. And as it relates to everything we've been talking about this morning, notice in particular, Jesus describes what his heart is like. Like in our passage, Jesus, in contrast, describes what our hearts are like. He describes them as filled with evil thoughts, murder, adultery, lying, and so on. But here Jesus describes his own heart as gentle and lowly, and how in coming to him we find rest for our souls and a burden that is light and easy to carry. I mean, we've seen in our passage and, and throughout the gospel accounts, you see how the solution that the Pharisees offered to the problem was very much it was a heavy load, a heavy load of religious observance that you just had to keep well enough and hope that you were doing well enough to, earn your, to be cleansed and to earn God's favor. And it certainly gave the appearance outwardly of cleansing. And yet, as Jesus plainly said by quoting Isaiah 29 there, he said it left their hearts far from God. Outwardly, it looked like cleansed behavior. Inwardly, hadn't touched the heart. And thus, it left them uncleansed in the one place they truly needed it. And yet, look, in coming to Jesus, we find instead gentle and lowly, a gentle and lowly heart, rest for our souls and an easing of burdens, a heart that we learn in John's gospel that was pierced, actually, as Jesus 
carried out that once-for-all sacrifices that would make all of their sacrifices obsolete, a heart that was pierced. And then later, in 1 John, applying that sacrifice to our hearts, John tells us this, if we say we have no sin, that is, like read that as, if we say we have no need of cleansing, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, there read like simply just acknowledging our need for cleansing, and that we can't accomplish it of ourselves, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My question for you this morning as we close is, have you acknowledged that need for cleansing? And have you received that cleansing at a heart level that only Jesus can offer? I don't presume just because I see your faces every Sunday that you have. Have you acknowledged that need and received that cleansing? Or are you simply following the blind guides of religion, politics, popular culture, whatever else it is, carrying out perhaps even like a rigorous external practice and proclamation of your faith, which at the end is nothing more than lip service. It's, it's the appearance of faith that you don't actually possess in your heart. If you know that the answer to that question is yes, I know I'm trying to operate in an outside-in faith that I hope will result in true cleansing one day. One of the wisest, bravest, most transformational things you can do is just simply acknowledge that reality. Just acknowledge that that's true. That is what I'm doing. And then receive the blessing of, as John says here, that confession is the, is the means by which we can be cleansed. Just acknowledging that we can't cleanse ourselves and saying, Jesus, would you cleanse me? That's all that's required in order to receive, to receive it. Or if you'd say, no, no, I have. I've truly acknowledged my need for cleansing and received that from Jesus, but I know I've also slipped back into something that looks very much like an outside-in faith. Well, you can acknowledge that as well. Acknowledge and confess that as well and trust that as God's word promises, even that will be cleansed by Jesus' blood shed for you. It's so... Attractive. It's such a, a simple but powerful trap, really, every time we fall into that practice of an outside-in faith. God is more pleased with me today because I did my quiet time this morning. Today is going to be a good day because this, this, and this. Or the other side, God's not pleased with me today because I swore at that driver who cut me off or whatever it is. All that kind of outside-in, it's such an easy trap to fall into, actually. Because just like Dr. Shepherd, we look so much like those with truly saving faith on the outside when we just carry out this external pattern. I just keep the pattern. I look like I'm following it. But what you need to know is that what Jesus came to live and die for was never to conform you to a pattern of religion. He didn't want to come and set up a, a list of rules for you to follow and hoops to jump through so that you could you know, be in good relationship with him. What he came for, as he says in John 10 so plainly, is that by faith in his heart-rending, truly cleansing sacrifice on your behalf, that you might have not just the appearance of life, but have life itself and have it to the full. That's what he came to offer us. I pray that by faith we might acknowledge our need for his cleansing, receive it today either for the first time or return to it as we remind ourselves that's the one place that we are truly find cleansing. The cleansing that we all sense that need for, but 
can never seem to find a solution for. God help us to do it. Amen.